All right, folks. I thought that because I think I'm assuming some knowledge of this series that not all of you might have, um, that I figured a few introductory remarks would be appropriate, um, especially in light of the debate that we had last week after Jim's, in the middle of Jim's presentation. It was a fascinating discussion. And the book that is guiding our Grace and Practice series is what we're patterning this series upon. And the book both deals with grace theologically and historically, and then applies it practically to different arenas of life, which might sound familiar. Last semester, we dealt with grace theologically and historically, and now in 2018, we're seeing grace applied to different areas of life. What Jim did was he talked about the most important application of that is grace in prayer, which inaugurated our grace and practice semester, which will conclude with Jim as well. And we had this debate about if there's no I in the Christian faith, if the ego has died, how do you work? How do you make a career? And on page 72 and 73 of Grace and Practice, highly recommended to go along with our series, that specific question is addressed, and I thought I would begin with it. Paul Zoll. Everyone wants a career. Everyone thinks it is the thing to do. Whether this is fashion or not, grace turns it upside down. Not only is career from the standpoint of grace a mighty joke, for a career spits you out as rapidly as it sucks you in, and not only is it dominated overwhelmingly by the principle of law as it fixes your path, but grace declares that the real work is created only when it springs from belovedness. Grace declares the end of all career paths, quote unquote, that envisage a concrete goal. In grace, work, the best and most enduring work, is fruit as unstudied and uncontrived as the peaches in Chilton County, Alabama. The irony of grace is not only that it sabotages any interview you might have with a Wall Street law firm, but that it actually prepares you to do the best work you will ever do if you should actually land the job. For when work is produced from natural desire and motive, rather than from the idea of action resulting in proposed consequences, the best work is done. This is because the subject of the work, the I of all human endeavor, is not its end. That I is dead. It was dead on arrival the day grace arrived on the scene, irrespective of your gifts, talents, and givens. Under grace, Career advances only one way, away from the wreckage of the eye and the absence of any fixed need for achievement. You might ask, what would a career like that look like? I would propose it would look like the career of Joel Sheesley in his painting. <laughs> Here he is. Wow. Um, <laughs> actually, those peaches in Chilton County, Alabama, are the product of a landscape. That's our subject uh, for today. Grace uh, in the landscape. Grace in the landscape. And uh, 
just a quick apology. You probably may have thought he's an artist. He's going to be showing us landscape paintings. We're going to have a good time being entertained with that. There's no screen. We're not talking about the art of landscape painting. We're talking about the landscape itself. So it's all around us, a lot to look at and think about, but we're not looking at artworks today. I think David Hooker will probably be taking care of art and grace as we get into the future. But let's begin uh, with a prayer. And this is a prayer that comes from a book some of you probably know of called uh, Celtic Benediction by J. Philip Newell. The Celtic, these are prayers in the Celtic tradition and it's one that is very familiar with the landscape. So let's begin with this prayer. In the beginning, O God, when the firm earth emerged from the waters of life, you saw that it was good. The fertile ground was moist, the seed was strong, and earth's profusion of color and scent was born. Awaken my senses this day to the goodness that still stems from Eden. Awaken my senses to the goodness that can still spring forth in me and in all that has life. Amen. I think to get at the uh, sense of what landscape is, which we ought to try to tackle right off the bat, we need to do a little bit of defining. And I've given you this handout, which you're going to have to kind of randomly follow through um, as we go along here. Two words help us to think about what landscape is. One is the word place, and the other is space, both very common to us, but when applied to the idea of the landscape, have a specific kind of implication. And uh, if we go, let's go directly to a geographer, Robert Sack, who taught for many years at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, who wrote a book that I have turned to oftentimes called Homo Geographicus, in which he argues for understanding ourselves as geographical people. This geographer says, from the perspective of experience, place differs from space in terms of familiarity and time. As we move along the earth, we pass from one place to another. But if we move quickly, the places blur. We lose track of their qualities, and they may coalesce into the sense that we are moving through space. So he suggests to us that place is dependent upon time and familiarity. And as time and familiarity are somewhat erased, we may find ourselves sensing space rather than place. Another uh, thinker on uh, this subject, not a geographer, but an Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, who's written a book called The Land, Place as Gift, Promise, and Challenge in Biblical Faith, a book that I found really helpful in thinking about land in scripture, um, says this, in the, as he's introducing um, his work, he says, space means an arena of freedom without coercion or accountability, characterized by a kind of neutrality or emptiness waiting to be filled by our choosing. That's space. 
But place, says Brueggemann, is a different matter. Place is space that has historical meanings, where some things have happened that are now remembered and that provide continuity and identity across generations. So he's suggesting further that place has this sense of history and time in it that uh, Sack also referred to, and that it's a, a kind of, he really suggests, begins to suggest a kind of ethical dimension to place that doesn't seem to apply to space. Sack, let's come back to him for a second, continues this ethical kind of notion and says, in simple societies, meaning more sort of what we might call primitive, in which the world is smaller and places are less differentiated, each place is thick with meaning. This makes it possible for people in these cultures to see and clearly experience the consequences of their actions on nature and culture. So building up again this ethical dimension of place, that um, it's a, a context in which consequences become apparent to those who interact with it. So we recognize a sense of responsibility. We recognize that our behavior is significant to that place. So how does this relate to the concept of landscape? Well, we'll turn at least to one art historian, a <laughs> um, man named Bodwin Baker, who wrote a book called Landscape and Religion from Van Eyck to Rembrandt, also really a great book if you want to think about landscape, now from the standpoint of art. But he's starting to lay out the beginning of our, the meaning of the word landscape and he says, he's going back to Dutch medieval sources, and he says the term Landschap, I don't know how the Dutch would say it, you have to get in there. Um, the term Landschap means, almost always refers to a well-defined geographical region, especially an area that can be surveyed from a particular vantage point, and which for this reason, forms a more or less organic and governable entity. So we have this idea of the scope of vision of a, of a human being. We have further, again, this ethical implication, even in the art historian, can you believe that? <laughs> um, that governable entity, which implies a responsibility toward and a kind of involvement with, is part of landscape. So when we think about landscape, we're thinking about place, something specific, something limited, something identifiable. And so what we are thinking about when we talk about grace and the landscape is we're talking about grace in a place, grace in a place. Now, we aren't going to pause for this at the moment. Maybe you can be thinking about this. And at the end, if we have some, uh, some time, you can bring some of these things forward. But probably you can imagine a place or a landscape in which you feel you have encountered unmerited favor or grace. Probably you can think of going to the landscape with the expectation of even receiving that kind of grace. And that is something then that may or may not be part of your experience, but probably everyone has had some kind of an inkling of that and we may be able to talk about some of those experiences um, a little bit later on. 
But I want to kind of move ahead uh, and uh, think of ways in which landscape acts as this mediator of unmerited favor or grace. And uh, turn to some uh, biblical texts that help us to think some of that sort of thing through. And so we go back to the story of creation in Genesis. And there, you know, we're introduced to the great magnitude of God's creative work in space through a very particular outlined landscape, which is a garden landscape. So it's through a place that we encounter God and recognize his powers you know, throughout all of space. And um, that notion of a garden is quite remarkable because a garden, the guard and the guarded place, the kind of enclosed place, the place that we have a relationship with, which we have responsibility toward, is the beginning of understanding in scripture who God is, who we are, what is important uh, for us in um, our lives um, as they go forward. And in that garden landscape, the writer of Genesis says that God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so immediately we have set before us these trees that are pleasing to the eye, good for food, and full of the knowledge of good and evil. And probably you immediately recognize they're a kind of little trinity that we talk about often uh, here at All Souls of beauty, goodness, and truth. And these trees immediately reflect that to uh, the people in the garden, that that is the character of the world that has been created, and that is the character of God himself. He embodies these qualities of beauty, goodness, uh, and truth. St. Paul takes that kind of thinking and really pushes it, I think, in a remarkable way in his letter to the Romans, um, you know, when he says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood from what has been made. So, this statement is profound. It's kind of overwhelming if you spend some time with it. Because the statement is, and he says a little bit later, it's so obvious that you are without excuse if you don't get that. If you don't see the way the creation, the landscape, the garden at that point, is revealing who God is. It's a, uh, I think, a rather remarkable uh, kind of of observation for Paul to make about the creation, that it is a picture of who God is. Now, a lot of thinking about that picture um, has been, uh, I mean, that's something that we explore and think about um, all the time, or have been for years and years. And recently, it seems to me, there are a number of people who are going to the story in, of creation in the book of Genesis and helping us to see it in a slightly new way. And um, one of these people is uh, John Walton at uh, Wheaton College, whose book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, um, is particularly at pains to help us rethink what the creation story, what that landscape is all about. And um, he... Uh, 
wants us to understand that the creation story is not so much a how-to it, how-to book. <laughs> you know, how did he do it? It's really about what does it mean? What is its significance? What is the, what's the import of the landscape? And so um, he says, you know, Genesis 1 can now be seen as a creation account focusing on the cosmos as a temple. It is describing the creation of the cosmic temple with all its functions and with God dwelling in its midst. So the landscape before us, says uh, Walton, needs to be understood as a picture of the temple of God. And the temple of God is, of course, the dwelling place of God. That's where God dwells, in the temple. And so what we're being led to understand is that this landscape is revealing the presence of God. And Walton goes on to say, the most central truth to the creation account is that this world is a place for God's presence. So if we then think about our term landscape and God's presence, and we think of the landscapes that we know, the domains that we can quote unquote govern, perhaps that's our backyard or our front yard or wherever, we are stewarding that place as God's dwelling place. That is where God is. It's not just something that we're not thinking about, it's the temple of God. Uh, quite an impressive kind of uh, notion. And of course, Isaiah was onto this and because God said, <laughs> this is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. He says, I'm in it, I'm there. Um, N.T. Wright also is very heavily following this kind of uh, thinking and he says, within this narrative, creation itself is understood as a kind of temple a heaven and earth duality where humans function as image bearers in the cosmic temple. So we have another, I think, profound thought here, which is that the landscape is God's dwelling place. Suddenly it has an import. I mean, we can pretty much think about taking care of our little church as a kind of temple and we sweep it and clean it and try to get it, keep it in order and you know, we see Martin hurriedly trying to get us to see it right and <laughs> arrange it. Um, but uh, so it is with the landscape. That same kind of care and that same kind of concern is extended to the dwelling place of God, which is well beyond, as is often said, beyond these windows, which have been made clear so that we can see it, uh, the dwelling place of God. Now, I, I want to jump over this next section that you have, landscape as origin, identity, destiny, and promise. I think it's fairly, in a sense, obvious stuff. And um, maybe we can come back to it if we have time. But to be sure that we do have time, the implication of this notion of John Walton and N.T. Wright and others about the temple and our relationship to it brings us to a notion about our calling or our vocation. And so I think landscape needs to be considered in relationship to um, our vocation. And landscape offers us a kind of grace in terms of giving us vocation. Again, in Genesis, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and care for it. 
Um, pretty straightforward. I'm deeply impressed when every Sunday when we speak about, you know, the first commandment and the second is like unto it. But there is even something I think that comes even prior to what we're talking about there, which is the first state of humankind in the world and God's command, care for your landscape, <laughs> care for your garden, care for this, uh, this world. And that is a vocation that's given to us as a task, as a calling. It's given to us in the context of the being made in the image of God. And being made in the image of God is, of course, this concept that we struggle with forever. But, it, you know, in Genesis, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. The kind of thinking that I find most exciting about what the meaning of being created in the image of God is, has to do with calling and vocation and not so much with, uh, is it rational, is it creative, is it this, is it that? But how does being created in the image of God affect us in terms of daily life? It's, it's a calling. We are called to be a picture of God, an image of God, a picture of God. We are to be a picture of God. We are to be God's presence. That's the way pictures function, right? You have a portrait to represent the person who you don't have with you. You have, uh, there's a kind of almost a sense of authority extended through pictures, you know, to uh, a place where the picture rests. That picture always emanates that sort of authority. That's the kind of being that we have been created to be, called um, to be a representative or an emissary, a, met, a priest perhaps, in God's temple, the landscape, uh, who have the task of caring for it. I've read a couple of books by this guy named Richard Middleton, a very interesting uh, uh, theologian, a book called The Liberating Image. He says, in the cosmic sanctuary of God's world, in other words, referring to that temple concept, humans have pride of place and supreme responsibility as priests of creation, actively mediating divine blessing to the non-human world. And in, post, in a post-fall situation, interceding on behalf of a groaning creation until the day when heaven and earth are redemptively transformed to fulfill God's purpose. So Middleton sees this call to be a call, which is a state of being in the image of God, to invoke the sense of being a priest of creation, um, actively mediating the divine blessing to the non-human world. And that's the first world that God commands us to interact with. So we often think of ourselves immediately in terms of, you know, God's call upon us to serve others and care for those in need and spread the gospel without question, <laughs> extremely important, totally important. But the first call is to care for the garden uh, as an image of God. N.T. Wright uh, comes along 
and furthers that, and this is a big notion with him as well, what the Bible offers, he says, is not a works contract, but a covenant of vocation. The main task of this vocation is image bearing, reflecting the creator's wise stewardship into the world and reflecting the praises of all creation back to its maker. And the thing that I think is interesting where, as far as grace is concerned, that it is, I, I think in my experience, the awareness of grace in the landscape that makes me aware of the potential vocation that I have as an image bearer. It's when we become aware of the grace in a place that our sense of responsibility and commitment to it emerge. And so um, this grace works to call us back to our, to our true calling, to um, what we were put in this world um, to do. Um, in the first place. If we carry out our vocation, all is well and good. Um, but of course, the problem that we all recognize is our failure uh, to carry out our vocation. And so the question then comes to us, well, what are the implications of that? And we immediately think of ourselves. And we think of how miserable and unfortunate we are because we happen to be inheritors of Adam's sin and runs through our whole system and we just kind of weep and moan about it. Um, but it also has implications for the landscape. And the Bible is pretty replete and pretty much in agreement that um, the suffering of the landscape is caused by human beings. We ask ourselves a lot these days, is it really a human-induced problem, <laughs> right? Biblical writers don't have any doubt. <laughs> They're absolutely convinced uh, of that um, question. Um, if we have failed in our uh, vocational task, that is, failed to honor the temple, failed to have reverence for God's holy dwelling, um, failure to accept responsibility for our landscapes, um, what's the consequence? Well, um, what we're talking about in this failure is sin. And um, our friend N.T. Wright is great um, on helping us to rethink and reorganize um, how sin operates and what it actually is as a kind of power rather than a particular moral uh, error, although those are also signs of sin. N.T. Wright says, actually, the Bible has several different words for sin. But these words all converge on the idea that human beings were made for a purpose, that Israel was made for a purpose, and that humans and Israel alike have turned aside from that purpose, distorted the vision, and abused their vocation, abused their calling to care for the landscape, the first, the first call. So he goes on, idolatry and sin are in the last analysis a failure of responsibility. They're a way of declining the divine summons to reflect God's image. The result of that failure in Genesis, cursed is the ground because of you. It's kind of a powerful, overwhelming statement when you think of it carefully. <laughs> um, cursed is the ground because of you. <laughs> so 
we have this sense that the implication of our failure to respect our calling to serve in the temple, the landscape, is that it becomes cursed. Again, we can look at a lot of scriptural references uh, where in the prophets are perhaps the best to do it, but we see it everywhere. Isaiah, in chapter 24, the earth is defiled by its people. Or in chapter 12, how long will the land lie parched and the grass in every field be withered? Because those who live in it are wicked, the animals and birds have perished. You ever heard of that? Animals and birds perishing? Yeah, right? Extinction of species. <laughs> Isaiah is not uncertain why that's happening. He's certain it's happening because those who live in it are wicked, have turned away from their vocation. In, later in chapter 12, many shepherds will ruin my vineyard and trample down my fields. They'll turn my pleasant field into a desolate wasteland. It will be made a wasteland, parched, parched and desolate before me. The whole land will be laid waste because there is no one who cares. So, you know, we've walked away from this calling, from this vocation. The land suffers as a result. So let's look at this last, one last little excerpt here, maybe from Jeremiah. He asks the question, why? Has the land been ruined and laid waste, like a desert that no one can cross? Good question. Why is it that the land has been laid waste and ruined? Answer, the Lord said, it's because they have forsaken my law. So this relationship between human sin and the landscape is also profound and, and intimate and something that um, uh, you know, we, we need to pay attention to. That sounds rather leading us away from grace and, and towards something um, you know, perhaps a little bit frustrating, but I do think even there, there is a kind of grace that is emerging because this, the, the landscape that the Bible tells us is suffering um, begins to act or take the, on the role of what I would call a kind of prefiguring of Christ himself. But the landscape assumes a characteristic that we later begin to see and identify very precisely in Jesus Christ as a prefiguration of his assumption of human guilt. So we have it in Genesis, cursed is the ground because of you. And then Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, Christ redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. Cursed is the ground because of you. Christ redeemed us, becoming a curse for us. And then Paul in Romans, in his letter to the Romans, the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. It wasn't the landscape's idea, <laughs> he's saying. <laughs> but it accepted the curse, right? And then we have Jesus in the Gospels, not my will, but yours be done. That is... He himself also accepts um, this curse. So there's this kind of sense in which the landscape helps us to see what's coming and fulfilled 
ultimately in Jesus Christ, who humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So I think in that um, awareness of the connectedness between Christ and the landscape, we begin to see the possibility of grace um, come, and it comes in what I think is peculiar. And here I'm really going out on a limb, okay? So feel free to just <laughs> uh, blow this off. But I can't help but notice in Jesus that we constantly have this notion, and it even was in our gospel reading today, in which he says, my time has not yet come. And that language, as far as I can see, is most intimately connected with childbirth. That's when a woman's time has come, right? The time to be delivered, right? That's an important moment, and Jesus is thinking about that in terms of himself all the time. Well, remember that in Genesis, the writer says, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. And Paul takes that notion applied to Eve and to women and applies it to the landscape. And in his letter to the Romans, he says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. So it's this interesting merging of these images of birth, childbirth, pain, suffering, that travel back and forth between Eve and the landscape. But then Jesus, is also using this kind of language to describe himself all the time. So this morning we heard, dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. My time to give birth, my time to deliver has not yet come. Paul is seeing that the landscape wants to do that delivering and um, now Jesus is, is assuming it. Later in John, he says, the right time for me has not yet come. I'm not going up to this feast because for me, the right time has not yet come. <laughs> I don't think that language is an accident. I think it's, it's connected to a long strain of thinking in, in scripture. And then finally, in John 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. So these pains of childbirth, this pain in Jesus, this pain in the landscape, also is a pain that is looking forward to birth and rebirth and renewal and restoration. And you know, we remember that when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for the restoration of God's kingdom on earth. We're not praying to escape the landscape. We're not praying to zip out of here because, you know, beam me up, Scotty, there's no intelligent life down here kind of thing. <laughs> it's about the restoration, the return to the landscape uh, of a sense of the temple, the world in which um, God dwells. So, um, 
I just want to then move to one other notion for you to think about in terms of the landscape. And I hope through all of this, what's going to happen to you is you're going to think a little more intimately about the landscape and a little more, consider it a little more sacred perhaps than uh, you might have bef you know, prior. Um, and this is a, a concept that is way too big for a guy like me to take on. I don't really claim to have any kind of confidence to do this, but it's really the landscape in relationship to the concept of the cosmic Christ. The cosmic Christ we think of as the resurrected Christ, the Christ who brings together heaven and earth, who is, is, we sing about is high uh, and, and lifted up. And um, in the cosmic Christ, in this image of Christ now, the cosmic being, um, we have all things being brought into unity, into a great um, uh, totality. So, you know, we read about this, we get these inklings from uh, letters in the New Testament and also from the Gospels, but in Colossians, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All cr things were created by him and for him, and in him all things hold together. So this notion of Christ, the risen Christ, holding all things together is an indication of not just our little concerns, but the concerns of the entire creation being knit and wedded together into one grand kind of unity in Christ so that our landscape truly is holy, truly is sacred. Through him all things were made, says John, and without him nothing was made that has been made, and in him was life, and that life was the light of men. So it's his presence in um, that is the grace-filled um, experience. I suppose it's in Ephesians that we get the, this profound kind of realization of this concept. And he made known to us, this is Ephesians chapter 1, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, and here we go, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. There it is again, the language of birth, right? The, the, the language of birth. To be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together, under one head, even Christ. So the landscape, the world that you can relate to, brought together under the headship of Christ becomes this sacred, grace-filled, and extremely important place. Also in Ephesians, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who, full, who fills everything in every way. So there you have it, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Um, there is grace, <laughs> I think, uh, in a world which is completely unified and knit together by Christ and in Christ and through Christ. So a few ideas, I suppose I just want to say, for me, this all kind of comes to resolution every Sunday when we sing the Sanctus. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Um, there is this, you just want to go. <laughs> um, 
kind of a confirmation of this cosmic Christ. Well, I think that's enough to think about maybe in, in this regard. You might have some thoughts. You might be able to remember a place where you felt you received unmerited favor, a landscape that blessed you in that way, or something else you want to say. Any, any, any thoughts? Yeah. You, uh, a few minutes ago said when you, from your perspective, when you see grace in the landscape, it affirms our calling or our vocation to care for the landscape. Could you expand on that a little bit? What does that mean? Well, that's kind of my bet in life, I suppose, in a way, is, you know, for example, I mean, uh, I have a hunch that, um, you know, in my vocation as a painter, my obligation is in part to find beauty in the landscape and represent it. My hope is that if you can see beauty, you can be reminded this blessing, you can be reminded of the value and, and significance and meaning of the place that inspires that beauty or that contains that beauty, thereby feel more beholden to exercise your stewardship over it rather than to just disregard it. Does that make sense? That's, that's kind of the way I think of it. Yeah, Elaine? I think your talk got home for me the importance of seed sowing as holding back the desert, um, as showing us the importance of God's work in the world and our connection to it. So that's where I ended up with seed sowing. Yeah. Well, and there is, you know, the suffering and dying also, right? Seed sowing, the seed goes into the ground and dies, it, it gives birth. So there's the, that kind of ritual cycle, you might say, that the landscape is doing every, all the time. <laughs> landscape is always repeating that. Yeah, Adam. Well, the landscape around here looks almost nothing like it did 200 years ago, say. There's a patch a couple blocks down the street for me of about 400 acres that was never plowed belong to the railroad, so it's still like native prairie. And you might say like restoring the landscape and caring for the garden means like you know restoring that. But you might also think that was just never tended. There were never any seeds <laughs> sown there. It was never you know farmed. It was never you know houses weren't built there. So like what does caring for our garden here look like given the radically altered landscape that, that we inhabit? Huh. That's a good question, and I think um, the interesting thing, you know, when you say it looks like it was never cared for, remember that the story in Genesis, God planted a garden in Eden. Yeah. He doesn't say Adam planted a garden, I mean, excuse me, not Adam. I mean, <laughs> he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't say, you know, human beings planted this garden. So it, that gives us cause to be more respectful of things as we find them, you know, to begin with. But it, it would be, you know, this is how to care for the landscape becomes really a complex issue. You know, we have people just struggling to figure it out. Um, uh, I think that what I, without trying to take on the big problems that are invoked, which have to do with, and Middleton talks about this, you know, he says, you know, image bearers are people in the landscape. It's not just the landscape and people are outsiders. There's this, this mix. So what is that? You know, to be, what is that relationship to be? And, you know, people like Wendell Berry struggle over this and they get pilloried for being, you know, too old fashioned and other people have great ideas and it's a, a kind of an ongoing uh, question. But I guess I think 
the thing to do is ask, what is my landscape? You know? And that's where I think it's not wrong to turn to your backyard and say, look, I can honor my backyard as God's temple. I can honor this little domain as being where God dwells. And exactly how you do that, you know, is going to involve some sensitivity to the original planting, right? But also a realization that we are people living in a culture that has its own expectations. And so, I mean, I kind of want to shrink it down in order to make it more manageable. And that doesn't answer anything for anyone, but each one of us individually. Yeah. I'm struck by the way Grace uh, is the heart of this because I, I grew up with reformed teaching in all my life education. And uh, common grace was, was always paired with special grace. And what you're talking about can fit everybody. Uh -huh. it, you know, in every part of this land and world. Um, I'm glad that came into our discussion of grace. <laughs> well, yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. That, that reformed idea about common grace is really a huge way of entering into this and understanding it. Yeah, yeah. point yeah it, there are there is a social dimension to what we're talking about as well I mean the, as the landscape keeps going back and forth here's the bell ringer <laughs> annual meeting next time and Joe will be back next week and every week right there <laughs> thank you guys.